You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The truth about the concept of the Trinity as it's described for us in the Bible. Before we get into the scriptures around this topic, We'd like to start briefly by considering the history of where this concept of God being a trinity first came from. And really, we can trace that idea back to a controversy that occurred in the early church, and it was known as the Arian Controversy. Now, why was this called the Arian Controversy? Well, there was a man that was called Arius, and... Arius was a believer down in Alexandria. He claimed to be a believer. He claimed to be a Christian. And he said that there was a time that when uh, that, that Jesus did not exist. And he said that Jesus obtained eternal life through obedience to God. And he said that Jesus was inferior to God. And in fact, he based his views on a very early creed that you may have heard of before called the Apostles' Creed. And this is what the Apostles' Creed said. It wasn't very long. It just said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And that was the creed that Arius followed. And it was followed by other church fathers, so to speak, if I can use that term, such as Tertullian and and Oregon. But around this time, someone else comes onto the scene. And there was a bishop of Alexandria, and this bishop's name was Athanasius. Again, some of you may have heard this name before. Now, Athanasius had a different opinion about Jesus and his nature. He said that Jesus had always existed, that he was always right there, that he was eternal. He said that Jesus had always had eternal life, and he said that Jesus was an equal part of a three-part Godhead. And so we can see that in the early church around this time that there was a dispute, quite a serious dispute, and that these things, these ideas, they were up for discussion within the church. These are things that hadn't been settled or or locked in. And there was a power struggle that went on between Arius and Athanasius and the followers of these people, a very nasty power struggle that went on between these men. And if we go back to our history books, we can read about this. We can read about how powerful a man that Athanasius was, that he used to get, you know, essentially street mobs of, of you know, his gang to go and, and beat up the followers who believed in Arius's views. Ridiculous kind of behaviour, not exactly very Christian, as we would say, but that's how this period of time became known as the Arian controversy. Now, for those who, who know their history around this time, there was also an emperor being in the Roman Empire, and this emperor's name was Emperor Constantine. Now, why Emperor Constantine is interesting for us is because he was the first Roman emperor to make Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. And so around 313 AD, not only did he make it legal, but Constantine, he wasn't really a Christian himself. He didn't really particularly live a a Christian lifestyle, but he decided to allow Christianity to come to the fore. And it became the religion of choice. It became the state religion in the Roman Empire from that point onwards. Now, once Christianity became a religion of the state of the Roman Empire, it meant that now religion 
suddenly became quite a political kind of force. It became something which people would, would fight over. There became power struggles based on your views in regards to your, your religious views. And it wasn't just a power struggle about religion. These were power struggles that were very political as they ended up being. And it was ba- So where you stood on your religious views ended up becoming quite a political issue. And this made Athanasius very, very anxious to make sure that he got the upper hand in this kind of argument over his rival. And so after a lot of back and forth between these two groups, some of it, you know, corresponding verbally, some more physical, Emperor Constantine wanted to come in and try to unite his empire. And so he sat down and he said to to these men, I'm going to have a council with all these bishops, with all the different views that these bishops have, and I will preside over this council. And we're going to decide at this point what is going to be the right way forward and we're going to decide what is the wrong way going forward. And so the Council of Nicaea was held in 325 AD. And here's what happened. This is the decree that came from that council. This is what they decided. They said that now they believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and in earth. But those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So this is the conclusion that they came to when they sat down and took all these views into account. This is what they decreed that fourth under the authority of the Emperor of Rome because he wanted peace in his realm. He didn't want these disputes that were happening to continue on. And so he wanted all resistance to that to be squashed. And so Arius, who we met before, and all his other followers who who didn't agree with this statement, they were treated now as heretics and they were banished and they were excommunicated from the church. And so that's how this belief in the Trinity had started to come about. A, A triune being made up of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and yet somehow still all one. And this is how the Trinitarians from that time forth, this is one of the ways that they try to uh, kind of explain it. They explain it in this diagram that we have on the screen here where we've got God in the middle of the screen and they say that God is the Father, that God is the Son and that God is the Holy Spirit. But the Father is not the Son and the Holy Spirit is not the Son and the Son is not the Father, but yet they're all God. And that's how they explain it. Does that make sense to you? Because I tell you, it doesn't make sense to me at all when I try and read that. You know, it's not only myself and perhaps some of you here, it doesn't make sense to. It actually didn't make sense to someone named St. Jerome. Um, Because in the Catholic Encyclopedia, and you can look this up and read this, this is still there, uh, we read this. This is what the Catholic Encyclopedia says. It says that, indeed, of 
all revealed truths, and when they say revealed truths, what they mean is the truths that the Catholic Church um, or the Church teaches that's revealed to them. This is the most impenetrable to reason. And then the Catholic uh, Encyclopedia quotes St. Jerome after that point. St. Jerome says, it's a well-known phrase, the true profession of the mystery of the Trinity is to own that we do not comprehend it. And you can look that up in the Catholic Encyclopedia. They admit that this concept is, is incomprehensible. This concept of having three in one and one in three. It's a mystery. It's incomprehensible. It's impenetrable to reason. And what we find is this concept, which, which cannot be understood by their own admission. It's, it was centered in the early Catholic Church. We find that this idea has been swallowed up after the Council of Nicaea by, by many other churches we see, which these other churches that came, they sprang out from the Catholic Church. So I'm just going to whiz through all of these at this point, just, and you, know, you can look them up yourself if, if you'd like to. It, basically, this idea is it's in mainstream Christianity, and we're going to look at all the different creeds. And so we've got the Catholic Church, of course, where it says at the top there, the mystery of the most holy trinity is central to their beliefs. We then see the Greek Orthodox Church. They believe in the Holy Trinity, which is of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We then see the Methodist Church says that we believe that the one God reveals himself as the Trinity. We then see that we've got the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Lutherans believe in the triune God, same with the um, Presbyterian churches that we see there. Um, then we've also got the Church of England, which says of this Godhead, there be three persons. And then the Baptist Church also believes in the eternal triune God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you can see that's not even all of them, but across mainstream churches, they've adopted this idea. They've inherited this decision that was made at this council in 300 AD, 300 years after Jesus Christ in the Nicene Council. They've all inherited and held on to this belief, this decision. But what we want to do, as uh, what we'd implore you to do as Christadelphians, is to ask a very simple question. What if the council got that wrong? I mean, they were men, after all, weren't they not? What if they got it wrong? And, and all these churches that we've got are all assuming what the truth is, and yet maybe it's not. How would we find out, how possibly could we find out whether it was true, this idea of the Trinity, or whether it's not? Well, if you know anything about Christadelphians, you'll know that we like to get right back to the source of matters, the only source of inspiration, the Bible itself. And one thing that's very interesting for us to consider, and we'll state right at the outset, is that when we come to the Bible, you may be interested to know that the word Trinity is not actually found at all. In our Bibles. And it's interesting to consider Cardinal Newman. He was a cardinal from the Church of England. He later converted to become a Catholic. But one of the things that he says about the Arians of the fourth century is that he says, from the very first, the rule has been, as a matter of fact, for the church to preach the truth and then appeal to Scripture in vindication of its own teaching. And so what he's saying is that 
at these councils, they would come up with and they would decide on their version of the truth and then they would scurry back to the scriptures to try and uh, back it up from the word. And what we're going to find, what we're going to go through the scriptures tonight is to first discover what do the scriptures actually say and then we will make our conclusions from there. You know, this subject is vitally important for anybody who claims to follow God. There's verses like this on the screen which show us the importance of this subject. In John chapter 4, verse 23, it says, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. So God is looking for people to worship him in truth. There is truth on this topic. It's not something that we can kind of back down on or agree that, yeah, it's, it's okay if there's you know, a multitude of different uh, views on this. There's not. There is a truth. And the Father is seeking those who wish to worship him in that truth. Here's another one. This is how vital this subject is. It comes from our reading tonight in John 17. It's verses 1 to 3. Jesus says in prayer to his Father, he says, Father, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this is, by the words of Jesus himself, this is a matter of life and death, to know the one true God, to understand the Father who is the only true God and is a separate being from the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent. And we'll come to that in a minute. And just so we can fully appreciate the seriousness with which our God wants us to take this subject. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 to 8, it says that the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is clearly a very serious subject. and It's one that we have to handle delicately. It's a lofty subject that we're talking about. And I'm, I'm almost certain that even after tonight's lecture, this talk, that you may have to go and check up on some of the things that you know we've looked at in this subject in a bit more detail, and we fully encourage you to do that. But as we go on now, we'll try and, and simply put together what it is that the Bible teaches on these things, because if we want to have eternal life, as Jesus says there, we need to know, we need to understand who God is. So how then is God described in the Bible? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, we read that the apostle writes, and it's through inspiration that he writes this. He says, I urge you, I charge you, it says in the King James Version, in the sight of God, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to whom be honour and everlasting power, Amen. And so from that verse, we can clearly see that there is one being who only has immortality and he dwells in a place which man cannot approach. Man just, we, we cannot come near to him. And it says that no man has seen God at any time. That's how powerful God is. And it says in other parts of scripture that God dwells in heaven. There's a few of those um, quotes just there on the screen. You know, 
We don't know where in the heavens that he exists, but somewhere in space, God exists in a location. And Jesus prays, doesn't he, in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, our Father who art in heaven. And so God is is in a place. He's he's in a place somewhere that we don't know. We can't go there, but we do know that he dwells in unapproachable light, that no man has ever seen them, that that God is the power, he's the source of immortality, and he's chosen to reveal himself to Israel. You know, maybe we can turn up, actually, Mark chapter 12. If you have your Bibles there, the, the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. You know, this teaching, it's, it's, it's so simple to get your head around, but it's, it's almost strange how people can become confused by it. But just while we're turning to Mark chapter 12, in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, we read and it says there, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's how God revealed himself to his people Israel, to his people in the Old Testament. And, you know, this teaching of a, of a single entity of God is then backed up by the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 12 that we've just turned to. And so we read in Mark chapter 12, of a scribe who is, who is interested to ask Jesus a question. And so in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12, it says there that, that one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's quoting back there from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. We can see the the consistency through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the scribe then says to him, um, uh, sorry, and we see that Jesus is very clear that that God is, is one. And then verse 32 in Mark 12 clearly indicates that, that this is what the scribe took away from that conversation. Because then the scribe says in verse 32, the scribe says, um, the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other other than him. And so this is how the Jews viewed, and, and the Jews still view, a monotheistic God, a monotheistic deity. He's one. That's very clear to them. And this is kind of a, a distinguishing feature of the Jews throughout time. They always kind of stood out amongst the the, the uh the pagan kind of cultures that they were always surrounded by, this, this acceptance and belief in just one God. And that's why they find the idea of the Trinity so abhorrent to them. And we learn further from Scripture that this one God is called the Father. Now, these verses, um, really, the next few that I'm going to put up on the screen, I almost feel like just putting these these ones up should pretty much clinch the argument for us and just after going through these, I feel like I could almost just sit down and that's the end of the talk, but I won't because there's, there's more time for us to fill up, so we'll go through that. But um, if you can just even just take these verses, you'll see how the Trinity just cannot fit with what the Bible is teaching here. In 1 Corinthians um, 8 verse 6, we've got it up there. It says there in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and... One Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So there's one God and there's one Lord Jesus Christ. Then we've got Ephesians 4 verse 6. There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. 
And then this 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, where it says there, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah 45 and verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. So it's quite clear, isn't it? Just from those scriptures, and there's so many more that we could go through. But just from these ones, we can see that the scriptures teach that there is one God and that this God is known as the Father. In addition to the the one God, the Father, there is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's very simple, isn't it? It's very, I think, easy to understand that concept. There is God, the Father, and there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we say, it's, it's, it's almost confusing when people can't get their heads around that seemingly simple concept. Now, this one God, the Father, he operates by a particular power and he uses this power to carry out his will. And this power in the scriptures is called his spirit or it's called his Holy Spirit, as it's sometimes called. And it's this creative power which God uses to make everything that's around us. He uses it to upkeep the universe that surrounds us, and it's this power that, that originates from God himself. And I just want to give you a few examples um, for us to consider, just to, just to show how the scriptures describe this power of God. It says there in Job 33 verse 4, it says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Spirit of God, the Spirit that comes from God, has made you. It's made me. In Job 34 verse 14, we read that if God should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, he should gather it back to himself, the consequence of that would be that all flesh would perish together and man would just return back to the dust. So it's saying then that this power then, that this spirit that comes from God, which God has, he uses it to create everything, but not just create, but to sustain everything. That if he decided to withdraw it, that we would would just simply die. And just return back to the elements that we came from. In Psalm 139 verse 7, we read, the psalmist writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? God's power, his spirit, it's everywhere. It's in everything. It's sustaining everything. And in John 4 verse 24, we read that this originates from God, this power. Because it says there that God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so we can see then that God's spirit is the way that he operates. It's the power source that he has to to accomplish, to do what he is that he wants to do. And he does various things and sometimes he gives this power, this spirit to individuals and that's to help them achieve his purpose. So for example, we, we, we can see that in scripture. There's uh, in Numbers, we've got a few of them up on the screen here. We've got in Numbers 27, we can see there that um, it talks about how he gave Joshua his spirit. In Judges 14, verse 6, it talks about this spirit being given to a man called Samson. Um, and, and the consequence of that was Samson having this amazing strength um, when he had the spirit of God with him. In Luke 1, verse 35, uh, we'll look at that in, in just a few minutes, but it says there that the Holy Spirit... Um, would come upon Mary, and by the Holy Spirit, by that power that we just talked about, the Lord Jesus Christ would be made. 
In Nehemiah 9 verse 30, it talks about God's spirit causing the scriptures, causing the scriptures to come about, the scriptures that we have access to, that, that I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have on our laps tonight. It caused that to be written. And it says there that, that for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. In 2 Peter 1 verse 21, it says there that prophecy never came by the will of man, but that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by that power, by the Holy Spirit. And then in John 6 verse 63, it says that it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I, Jesus, speak to you are spirit and they are life. And so we can see then that the word of God was produced by God's spirit power and he caused men, uh, as, as you can see in the second Peter quote there, to be inspired by that power to then write down the things that God wanted them to write down. And that's how we have our, our Bibles in front of us tonight. But quite clearly then, if we look at all those verses, um, and there's many, many more we could look at through Scripture as well, but, but quite clearly, just from what we've looked at tonight, the Holy Spirit is God's power that he uses. You probably notice in none of these verses that we've looked at so far, does it denote that or indicate that it's a person who is also a part of a Godhead, as, as Trinitarians would state or believe? Um, I would put a little caveat in there slightly because sometimes in Scripture, um, and this can cause a little bit of confusion sometimes, sometimes this power, this, this Holy Spirit, it can be personified in, in some cases in our Scriptures. But we need to make sure that we're taking into account, whenever we are trying to determine something, um, that we're taking into account the whole story of Scripture before jumping to any conclusions from just you know one section. And that's why we sort of jumped all over the Scriptures to get the proper story there. Now, we've already mentioned that God the Father is the single power source of all things and that he dwells in unapproachable light, that he can't be approached by man. We read that in 1 Timothy 6 verse 16. Um, and there's another one there in John 1 verse 18 as well, where it says that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So it's very clear from Scripture that, that no man can see God. No one can approach before God, um, and no one's seen him at any time. So if that's the case, if no one can actually see God or, or come into his presence like that, how is it then that God can interact with man? And how is it that God can work with men on earth? And well, we learn from the scripture that he does this by his messengers initially in the Old Testament, the angels. Now, I want us to look at one of the examples there in Exodus chapter 3. Um, it's a well-known account, and feel free to, to turn up and have it open in front of you as well if you'd like. I've got um, most of what we'll look at on the screen there, but it can be handy to have it in front of you as well. So Exodus chapter 3, and, and Exodus chapter 3 is it's a well-known account of um, a man named Moses, who I'm sure many of us have heard of, when he sees a burning bush. And from the burning bush, he communes, he speaks with God. And there's some details there which are really important for us to try and understand about how God operates with man and how God chooses to reveal himself to man um, in that account. So if, we're the, if you're there, if we're looking at Exodus chapter 3, we just want to have a look at verse 2 where it says, 
that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses, to him, in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So it's quite clear that it says there in verse 2 that an angel of the Lord appears in the bush. But then look at what this angel does in verse 6. It says, moreover, he, which is the angel, from verse 2, the angel said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So Moses was concerned because he was thinking, am I looking at God here? Because you know this... This angel, this manifestation is choosing to reveal itself as God and and no one can look on God at any time and and live. So Moses, as you can understand, is pretty um, concerned about this. And we get the same idea that's revealed to us in Acts chapter 7 and verse 30 where it says that when 40 years had passed, it's, it's the same story in the New Testament recounting the story with Moses the burning bush. It says when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush. And this is the important point. Look at this. When, because when the angel speaks, how does the angel speak? And it says there, it was definitely an angel. It says in verse 32, this is the angel speaking, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And what this shows us is that the angel was in fact a representative. The angel was a manifestation of God. That when that angel spoke, the angel spoke as God spoke. He was God's representative. The angel wasn't God himself. He was God's representative. And we see the same kind of thing occurring in other parts of the Bible, certainly not exclusive just to Moses and that story there. Um, for example, if um, we don't have time to, to turn to it now, there are a lot of them, but in Genesis, um, a, a well-known story, Jacob, um, a man who was uh, wrestling with God is what we read in the Genesis account. But then when we go later in the Bible to the book of Hosea, we, we read about that story um, being recounted and, and we read there that actually what happened in that situation, that Jacob was actually wrestling with an angel. And we get lots of instances where angels... When they speak, they're speaking on behalf of God. They're representing God to the people they're talking to. And so we get this idea that these angels are manifestations of God. They aren't God himself, but they are doing his will. They're revealing his character. They're, they're revealing his purpose to people. So then going back to the, um, the story that we were um, looking at in Exodus chapter 3, I want to point something else out because we've got to do, and it's important for us to do this groundwork if you're wondering what this has got to do with the idea of the Trinity because as we carry on, we'll see how this is fundamental to our understanding um, on the topic that we're considering tonight. So we read there, if you're still there in Exodus chapter 3, how God, through the angel, reveals himself to Moses and he gives Moses his name. And this is very important. So we read in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 3, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. So God's name in this story is revealed. 
But it's not a brilliant translation that we've got there in front of us, um, to be honest, where it says, I am who I am. It's actually better translated, I will be who I will be. Because the idea in the Hebrew is that it's got this idea of a plurality to it. But it's also not just got a plurality to it, but there is a future tense associated with it as well. And so in verse 14, where it says, I am who I am, it's the Hebrew down there, Aya, Asha, Aya. I will be who I will be. And that's how God speaks. He says, I will be who I will be. But then he tells Moses to go and tell the children of Israel about this name. And he changes it slightly. And he uses a proper noun, not the first person. And he says, go and tell the children of Israel, the Lord. And and where it says the Lord, if if you're ever reading through um, your Bibles, and wherever you see the Lord in capitals, that's the Hebrew Yahweh. Um, Or you may have heard it um, uh, pronounced Jehovah. And that means he who will be. And so right here, right back in Exodus, we've got this concept that God, a a single, powerful being, wants to reveal himself, as we can see here, in a multitude of beings in the future. Now, that can be quite a a difficult concept for us to to sort of get our heads around, but hopefully as we go on, it'll become clearer um, uh, why this principle, why this biblical principle of God manifestation, of God being a single powerful entity wanting to manifest himself in in multiple powerful entities um, is so important to helping us understand this topic of the Trinity and why it's not taught in the Bible. So what we like to do now is to look at how God didn't wish to limit it to his angels. He didn't only want to reveal himself in angels in the way that he chose to reveal himself to people. So if you will, turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, back in the, um, in the Old Testament. Um, we're going here because God said in this um, uh, scripture that we're about to look at that he was going to reveal himself in a son. And that son, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read at verse 12 um, a promise that God gave to a man called David. David was the king over Israel. And God gave a promise to David. And God says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David would have a seed or a descendant would come from him. And this person, this this descendant, would have a kingdom that would last forever. That's a promise that's here in the Old Testament. And look at what it says in verse 14. It says, I will be his father. This is God speaking. And he shall be my son. So this seed was going to be the son of God and a descendant of David. But the most important thing to note about this particular descendant are the words that we read in verse 13, where it says, He shall build a house for my name. So he's connected already there, this idea that we're looking at before about God's name, which is his, the, the manifestation of, of God's purpose for the future. And when we take this promise in the context of other scriptures, we realize that this promise In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 7 there, is pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who would be a descendant of David, and he's connected with God's purpose right there from the beginning of time. Um, uh, 
where we would have one to come who would manifest God as a mortal man. And we read about that idea in John 1 verse 1. We move into the New Testament. So we've got there in John 1 verse 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this is an important concept for us to get our heads around. The word for word there in, um, in John, it's the Greek word that we've got over here, which is um, logos. And it means the mental faculty of thinking, uh, meditating, reasoning, calculating doctrine, teaching a decree, a mandate, or order, a promise, which we can sum all of that up as the purpose of God. So what that's literally saying there in John 1 verse 1 is that in the beginning was the purpose of God or his plan. And the purpose of God, his plan was with God. And the purpose of God was God. That was what it was all about, this, this purpose that God had. And when we read about this purpose or revealing himself in the promised seed, this promised seed who would become flesh, a man. And, and we read that in John 1 verse 14. The purpose became flesh. That plan, everything that went into the, the Logos became flesh in verse 14 of John 1 and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God was revealing, was fulfilling his promise. And he started to fulfill that promise in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to manifest God's character to, to man, to the world. Let's turn over then to, to Luke chapter 1, because we want to look now at the account of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to see as we look at this account of, of, of Jesus Christ's birth, whether there's anything in this account which would indicate to us that Jesus was, in fact, part of a trinity. Because, as we'll see, it doesn't actually indicate anything like that in the slightest. But also, while we're here, I want us to have a look at um, what the Word of God says about the Holy Spirit and its function. Because we're reading carefully, um, we'll see that um, the Holy Spirit uh, is clearly not God, but it's his power that he uses. So we read there in, in Luke chapter 1 about the angel appearing to Mary. So starting at verse 31 um, for context, so Luke chapter 1, verse 31, it says there, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Remember the promise that we looked at just before in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about the throne that was going to be established forever. And it's going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the promise was going to end up. So in verse 33, continues on, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the connection back to 2 Samuel 7. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And so we see, don't we, when we read through that, how firstly that the Holy Spirit is the power of the highest. And God used that power to bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit was being controlled by God. 
to achieve that purpose. And so in that sense, Jesus did come, does come from the Father, but only in that sense. And so we see that Jesus was caused to be born by God's power, and he's the Son of God. But we can also see that he is literally the Son of Mary, and he is truly a descendant of David. It's how we've brought those two together. He has those two two, um, things within him. He has the character of God, which has come by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, which was to develop within him, but he had a nature as well of, of man that he inherited from Mary. And so he was a human being, but he would manifest the character of God perfectly as well. Jesus was the son of man, but he was also the son of God. And Trinitarians, though, will have us believe that he's God the Son. Now, how many times do you think in the Bible put my numbers up here, um, that Jesus referred to in the New Testament as the Son of Man. By my rough calculations, it's around 89 times in the New Testament. The term Son of God is also referred to Jesus around about 47 times. But how many times do we see the term God the Son? Zero times throughout the Bible. And as we've already said, the term the Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible at all. He's never known as God the Son, and the term, the Trinity, God or Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they're never termed or known as the Trinity. You have to read these ideas into the Bible if you are wanting to believe the Trinity and into every single passage that we might, you know, try, that they might try and use to justify their views. So Jesus was the Son of God. And so uh, we don't have time to turn there, unfortunately, but in John 3, verse 16, we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in Hebrews 1 verse 5, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration, says, um, God says, for to which of the angels did he ever say, did God ever say, you are my son? God never said that to any of the angels, but he says it about the Lord Jesus Christ. Today I have begotten you. So Jesus was born, as we read there in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus was born. He was begotten. The very fact that the Bible says that Jesus was begotten means that he didn't exist beforehand. Begotten means to be born, to bear an offspring. Jesus was the offspring of God the Father. He was not God himself. And we see there that he was begotten at a particular point in time. Today I've begotten you. There's a point in time that that indicates. indicates. Today I have begotten you. Not, you know, bringing you from past eternity into a new kind of way of being. It's this particular point in time that he was born. And in Luke chapter 2 verse 52, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. You know, if Jesus was God, how was it that he could increase in favour with himself? These things just make no sense. And so as the child, Jesus grew and we know that he received the Holy Spirit when he was baptised. But again, this raises the question, How can he receive the Holy Spirit if he was, in fact, part of the Holy Spirit himself? So if Jesus wasn't God, well, then who was he? Well, before we look into that, turn with me to Matthew 16, because we actually have, we want to look at here the confession of one of Jesus' disciples, Peter. And it's very clear when we read this who Jesus claimed to be. Matthew 16 and verse 15. Jesus said to them, the apostles, verse 15, Who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So that's who Jesus said he was. He was the Son of God. He agreed with what Peter said, that he was the Son of God, that God was his Father. Um, in John 5, verse 43, which connects all these sort of points we've been thinking about, Jesus says there that he, um, Jesus says, I've come in my Father's name. You know, in a sense, it was like the angel in the Old Testament who bore God's name. That angel represented God. When Jesus spoke, it was as if God himself was speaking. When Jesus did particular things, he was doing it in the name of the Father. Jesus manifested the Father to us, but he wasn't literally the Father. John 7 verse 16 tells us, well, Jesus says there, my doctrine is not mine, but it's his who sent me. Um, in John 8, 28, Jesus says, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And then he also says in John 14, 28, that my Father is greater than I. Um, we see all those um, ideas there. So Jesus then was the Son of God. He was a man. He had divine character through inheritance from his Father. He followed all the ways of God and he was a manifestation of God, but he was not God himself. And this is backed up by various other scriptures, which we don't unfortunately have a whole lot of time to consider tonight. Um, we've already had a chance to look at some of them tonight, um, which uh, if afterwards I'm more than happy to pass them on because we've had a bunch of them that we, we've been able to look through. But it's quite clear that Jesus was not God um, and that God was not Jesus, but that God operated and he worked through Jesus. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, this is a good one for us to look up. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's just such an abundance of scriptures to help us um, figure this out that it's hard to narrow down um, to, the, to the best ones. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, with all these things in mind, we can understand, I think now, um, what the apostle means when he says in verse 19 that God was in Christ, reconciling the word to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So through the work of Christ, we can be reconciled back to God. It can't be any clearer, can it? Um, there's another great quote. We won't turn it up and if you want to jot it down. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, um, where it says that it's one we've actually looked at already. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And this man, he shared our nature. It tells us that when we look through um, the book of Hebrews, how Christ had to be made perfect through his sufferings. That he wasn't perfect before he suffered that he was a man in terms of his nature like us, not just in, uh, in his character because he did not sin. It says in Hebrews 5 verse 7 that God was able to save him from death, indicating that he was capable of dying. And in fact, he did die on the cross. He was a man. So he's related to us in that way. He had the same problem as us. He had the same nature, the sin curse nature that we have. Um, and we read that in Hebrews 4 verse 15. Um, 
So we can conclude after all of that that Jesus clearly was a man in terms of his nature. He was tempted to sin just like we are, and he was always subject to the Father. The Trinitarians teach that he's co-equal, that he's co-eternal with the Father, that he's part of the, the triune Godhead. But as we go through our Bibles, we see that clearly he wasn't. And we see some clear differences between, um, between God and, and with Jesus as well as we go through. He didn't have the same um, knowledge as his father, um, as we read in, in Mark chapter 13. Mark 13 verse 32, Jesus says, But of the day and the hour that he was going to return, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven know, um, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the Father, by Jesus' own admission, knows something that the Son does not. Um, and in Revelation chapter 1, it's quite clear. Um, Revelation 1 starts by saying that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, there was some knowledge there. This is even after Jesus has uh, ascended into heaven, that there was some knowledge there that Jesus didn't have, but the Father gave to him. And so in Acts 1, verse 6 and 7, the disciples ask Jesus and they say to him, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus said to them that it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And we read that Jesus was capable of having a different will to God. Um, Again, we won't turn there, but in Luke 22, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before um, his betrayal and before his crucifixion, um, when he's praying to to the Father, he says those powerful words, not my will, but thy will be done. So what can we, uh, again, conclude from all of this? We see that there are clear differences when we sit down and read through the scriptures between God the Father and his Son. We see there that God can't be seen. Jesus was seen by many. That God didn't have a beginning, but we read that Jesus was begotten. God knows all things, but Jesus had to increase in wisdom and understanding. We read that God can't be tempted um, we read that in James chapter 1, but, but Jesus was tempted in all points, just like us. We read that God can't die, but obviously Jesus was killed on the cross and had to be resurrected. And then in Numbers, it says that God is not a man, but in Romans, we read that Jesus was a man. Now, actually, what I'd like us to do now is to turn to our final reference tonight from our Bibles. If you come with me now to John chapter 10, because I think it's good to, to do this. Um, you know, Trinitarians will quote verses like this in John chapter 10, and they'll say, well, well, hang on a second. What about verses like this in John 10 verse 30, which seem to imply that Jesus was God? What do we do with that? So we just like to deal with that very briefly in the time that we have left, and in so doing, hopefully reveal the true hope that we believe is contained within the Bible. So Jesus says there in John chapter 10 and verse 30, he says, I and my Father are one. And of course, many Trinitarians and and other um, mainstream Christians will, will say, well, there you go. Jesus and God, Jesus and the Father, Jesus says himself, they're one. They're the same thing. But I'd suggest that before you jump to that conclusion, that we... Turn back to our reading from tonight, John 17, and have a look at verse 20. Because here we understand what Jesus means when he says that he is one with his Father. 
In John 17 and verse 20, Jesus is in prayer to God and he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So in in this moment, he's not just praying for the immediate apostles and followers who were there with him. He's praying for all of us who might believe in the message that the apostles go forward and, and, and spread in the first century. Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And so what Jesus means then by that point is that he was at that point in purpose and in character with God. He was one with God. And when he died and when he rose again, then he became in nature with God as well. And what he's saying is it was his prayer that those that would those um, men and women who would follow his teachings that they would also be one in that sense, one in purpose with what God had said, one in the logos that we looked at before, the plan, the purpose, which was with God right from the beginning, to become one with that. And we can see that that's the case from other parts of Scripture. I'll just read this one, Second Peter 1 verse 4. Peter writes, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you the followers of Christ may be partakers of the divine nature. So we haven't got that nature now, not yet. We're mortal. We inherit the, the nature we have from Adam, our, our you know great-great-great-grandfather. But we can have the divine nature through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we also might be one with him and with his Father in the future. That's the hope of the Bible, to manifest God in immortal bodies in the kingdom. That's why we looked at that whole section about God's name and and God manifestation, because that's the hope that we want to be a part of, just like Jesus did it perfectly. We also want to follow in that example and be a part of that in the future to come. That's what we all look forward to. Now, I'm very aware that we've gone through things at a rapid pace. Um, And as I said at the beginning, I'm sure if this is new to you, then you'll probably need to um, go away and and digest some of these things and certainly uh, look into these things. Um, yourself. But just to be very clear as to our understanding of these matters from what we've looked at, we have God the Father, who is a single being, a single entity, who dwells in heaven, and everything originates from God the Father. And he has a power that he uses, the Holy Spirit, which he uses to accomplish, to, to do various things. And he manifests himself in different ways. He manifests himself in angels. We've seen that there are angels who can bear his name. And he manifests himself in the Lord Jesus Christ that we read about, the Son of God, the one who would show us perfectly the way to please God. And he manifests himself in his purpose. He will manifest himself in the saints, the true believers, the true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ones who strive to follow his character in their lives. And when Jesus returns, it is these people who will be given eternal life that we believe in the kingdom age. And so as we've tried to show you tonight, not only how false the doctrine of the Trinity is, 
but to also show you instead the true hope that's in the Bible and how it connects to you and, and how we can live it in our own lives. You know, we just want to end on a, unfortunately, a sober note, but one that I think is important to make, that the early apostles taught that the truth that they would teach would become corrupted. They knew that, that there would be a great lie that would go forth. Um, it says in Timothy that men would arise who would turn away the believer's ears from the truth. It says in Acts 20 verse 29 that savage wolves would come in among the believers, not sparing the flock, that men would rise up speaking perverse things to, to draw away disciples to themselves. Doesn't that sound like um, what, we, what we read about at the, at the start between Arius and... Um, I just blanked on the... Um, what was that? Yeah, there's... A, just blanked on his name, um, Anastasius. Yeah. Um, doesn't it sound like that? People drawing disciples um, unto themselves, causing factions and the fights that were going on there. And in Second Peter 2, verse 1 to 2, we read that there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And so... What we'd like to suggest that tonight's message that you take away with you is to read your Bible, to not listen to the creeds of men that were decided by politicians um, with you know, various reasons why they wanted to believe certain things in the Roman Empire 300 years after Jesus was raised from the dead, but instead go back to the original source, go back to the Word of God, the Bible, to seek, to understand God so that we can all Worship him as one, as was Jesus' prayer that we read in John 17, in spirit and in truth. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.